Well, as we announced on Sunday morning tonight, we want to continue in sort of our uh, series here on covering the person and work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in our last session together, we specifically look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And uh, in covering some of the things we did there, there were a few things that were sort of still on my heart that I wanted to communicate that I didn't get to to touch upon last time. So I want to sort of pick up and kind of wrap up really on that same topic of the the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, specifically among the church. Um, Particularly tonight, I want to kind of look at that from the angle of how the Holy Spirit empowers and strengthens the church uh, in the sense that the Bible gives us the picture uh, in the Word of God that the church, uh, one of the analogies we have anyway, uh, is that the church is a body, that Jesus Christ is the head, and that you and I are the body of Christ as individual Christians, and we're uh, individual children of God, but yet we're members of one another, and we collectively make up this mystical, spiritual body of Christ, as the Bible refers to it. And so just like a physical body, there are different parts. There are eyes and ears and mouths and feet and hands and uh, you know vital organs. And in the same way, a body functions together, but yet it has different functions. That That's a picture of you and I as individual believers who God has collectively called together to be unified as one with Jesus Christ being the head and of course uh, in regards to that just like a a physical body uh, there's the potential to be healthy or to increase in health to retain health to develop and even really uh, become stronger and more healthy through exercise and proper diet and so forth and in the same way there's the potential for a human body to become sickly and to become unhealthy and I think all those same analogies exist for the church as a body there's the ability for us to uh, remain healthy to become more healthy and there's always the potential for things to uh, be a part of what would cause us to become unhealthy Uh, we've all maybe been a part of uh, at one time if you've been a Christian for any time maybe a church where you saw things get a little bit unhealthy and a lot of times uh, one of the bigger contributors to that is just the simple fact that the the spirit of God and his ministry sort of the uh, you know spiritual circulatory system of the church that's supposed to be operating uh, some type of a clot if you would uh, just like when somebody has a blood clot it causes a major health issue begins to happen and there's a grieving of the spirit or a quenching of the spirit because of maybe what's going on or taking place or even a a complete resistance to the spirit of God's ministry and and things can begin to deteriorate and break down. So uh, I want to talk about tonight kind of how the Holy Spirit in his ministry among the church, again, sort of strengthens and empowers the church to keep it healthy. Uh, And specifically, again, if you're a note taker, kind of seven Uh, different things topically I want to address in relation to that. Certainly there are probably many, many more, but these are some of the ones that are on my heart to communicate. And the first one I want to look at together tonight, actually if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter uh, 16. And some of these passages, again, in these studies, obviously, we're being a little more topical and and focused. We'll be moving around some different scriptures. I'll try to give the references. You don't have to turn here or there if you want to just kind of listen or make notations. I'll try and read the text where it's pertinent. Uh, But but the first uh, area I want to point out where the Holy Spirit empowers and strengthens the church to keep it healthy, again, if you're a note taker, number one, is that the Holy Spirit will proclaim 
Uh, he will point to, and I think beyond that, he will continuously, continuously promote that Jesus is the foundation and the focus of the church. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit will proclaim, he will then continually promote that Jesus himself is not only the foundation, but should be the focal point of the church. Now, again, here in Matthew chapter 16, we come to the first place, really in the entire word of God, where the word church shows up at. And I think it's very wonderful that the first place we get the word church in the Bible here, it couldn't be on any better lips. It's on the lips of Jesus. You know, if there's anybody who I want to understand, what does the church mean? Uh, what are you talking about? What's the purpose of the church? What's the foundation of the church? What's the plan for the church? I would much rather hear Jesus's opinion uh, than any pastor, any ministry, despite how much experience someone may have, any you know seminar, uh, anything. I would rather hear, well, not just as what the Word of God have to say, but what does literally the Word of God, Jesus himself, God in flesh, what does he have to say? And Jesus is the first one who introduces this term church, uh, the ecclesia, the, 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 the called out ones, those who are separated by God's Spirit, to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, collectively called together as, as a mystical spiritual body. And it's Jesus who introduces this term and has some things to say about it here. Matthew chapter 16, look with me beginning in verse uh, 13. Uh, it tells us, Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, that he asked his disciples a question, saying to them, who do men say uh, that the Son of Man, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So Jesus asked this probing question, and there's a purpose for this because there were a lot of different collected opinions out there of who Jesus really was. You know, different people had different perspectives, even as today. Different people have lots of different perspectives in regards to who Jesus Christ was. You know, was he just a great prophet of God? Uh, was he a miracle worker? Was he really the son of God? Uh, among pseudo-Christian cults, you know, he, he's, you know, just a high-ranking angelic being. Uh, there are lots of different ideas out there, and there was in, in Jesus' day himself. So Jesus poses this question now to trigger this thought process with his own disciples. He says, tell me, I, I want to hear, you tell me. You know, not that he didn't know, but he's taking them through a process, just like he does you and I when he wants us to understand something. He asks a question. He says, tell me, who do men, who are people saying that I, the Son of Man, am? And he's going to bring them to the point of, I want you to fully understand who I am, because that's foundational to the church. Because he's going to say, if there's anything that's foundational to the church, is that you have an accurate understanding of who I am. To have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is is absolutely fundamental for the church. Because when you accurately understand who Jesus is, and then you rightly respond to Jesus in relation to who he is, the Son of God, the Savior, the Lord, the head of the church, uh, then the church begins to function and operate in the way that Jesus intends for his church to operate. So he says, what are people saying? Well, they answer, verse 14, some say John the Baptist. The idea was that John the Baptist had come back from the dead. Some believe that John the Baptist, this powerful prophet in that day, remember, that was beheaded because of his boldness and righteous speech, that John the Baptist had come back from the dead. So some thought Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. 
Some were saying that he was Elijah. Malachi 4 said that Elijah would come before the Messiah came. So some people thought Jesus was Elijah. He was doing great miracles like Elijah did. So, hey, maybe this is Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. Malachi said that Elijah would come first, and he's doing miracles like Elijah did. They said, Lord, others are saying that you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He had a great heart for people who were suffering, and, and Jesus was doing many things for those who were suffering. He was helping the poor and, and doing a lot of really you know, gracious things in a very social way to help feed the hungry. And, the, and so, hey, well, maybe you're, 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 this is Jeremiah, in a sense, who uh, the spirit of Jeremiah was upon him. And, and others just say that you're one of the prophets. Again, you're, you're just a man of God, a prophet of God, like others who've raised up in history. And then Jesus puts the trigger question out as he always does, he zeroes it in to the individual. He says, well, that's great. I, I'm really glad that you have a good pulse on what everybody else is saying about me. But he asks that searching question that he asks every human being, but who do you say that I am? And man, at the end of the day, that is the crescendo of the question, the most important soul-searching question that every single person has to answer to Jesus. Is Jesus looks at him and says, look, I, I, I understand I hear what you're saying about everybody else. I hear what you're saying, but I'm asking you, who am I to you? Who am I to you? Jesus says, who do you say that I am in your life? And Simon Peter, Peter, I'm sure you're shocked. He's the one that, that answered up here, but he was on target this time. He answered and said, you are the Christ. The idea is the Messiah, the Christos, the anointed one that we've been waiting for that was prophesied. You are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Simon, that wasn't a natural conclusion you came to. That wasn't through you just deducing through good human logic and research and study. Simon, that was a spiritual revelation. The only way you could know that, he says, is that flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. And you know what? I'll tell you something, gang. The only way truly you and I and any human being, no matter how much research we do and we learn the word of God and people witness to us and testify to us, a person cannot truly come to a genuine, authentic understanding in their own heart of who Jesus is to them until they have a spiritual revelation that is divine in its nature from God himself that reveals to them who Jesus is. I can ask lots of people who I know are genuinely not born again, they're not converted, who is Jesus? And they probably just as accurately as most of us in this room could tell us pretty doctrinally sound who Jesus is. Oh, he's God's son, he's the savior who died on the cross for our sins, and, and they, can, they can share the intellectual information, but yet there's still a spiritual dynamic missing because they've never had a revelation of God to their soul where their soul has been awakened by the Father in heaven, opening their eyes and opening their heart to truly embrace Jesus for who he is. And this is what, what Simon is proclaiming here. And Jesus is acknowledging, he's commending him. Simon, that's a spiritual revelation that you've acknowledged that I am the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, verse 18, And I say to you that you are Peter, Petras, and he says, and on this rock, Petra, a different word, meaning a large boulder. So he's not referring to Peter here. And you can look at the original language and it's very evident what Jesus is saying. And I say to you that on this rock, I will build my church. There's our word. And the gates 
of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus references the church and he says that he will build his church on a rock. Now, again, the rock he's referring to is not Peter. Unfortunately, you know, some of our friends among the church collectively have put a little too much emphasis that the church was built on Peter and Peter's the foundational stone and so forth. By golly, the church would be a way bigger mess if the church was built on Peter. We know anything about Peter in the Gospels. Uh, Peter was you know, known to be up, down, shifting sand. He's walking on water. He's swallowing a drinking water. The next, and, and the church has enough struggles as it is. If Jesus was saying he was going to build the church on Peter, uh, that is a really kind of kind of a scary concept. And of course, you know, common sense just tells us, if not the language alone and the rest of the Word of God in context, Jesus was referring to himself. He was referring to the public proclamation that Peter just made about himself, that Peter had just proclaimed by a spiritual revelation from God in heaven that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And that accurate doctrinal proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior, and the Son of God about who Jesus was, that is the rock, the foundational basis upon which Jesus says, I'll build my church on that. I will build my church on the foundation of who I am, because that's a solid, stable, sturdy rock foundation built upon the person of Jesus and all of who he is. And therefore, the church at its basis should be about, hear me, the centrality of Jesus. Jesus said, look, that's what I will build my church upon. That's what the gates, the plans and plots of hell, because they would meet in the gates to make determinations and plans. Jesus says, if the church is built upon me, then the gates of hell, they may attack the church, the plans of hell, the plots of the devil, but they will not succeed if it's built on the right foundation. If it's built on the wrong foundation, then Satan can infiltrate it, and he can ultimately overcome it. And Jesus says he may come against the church, but if it's built on the right foundation, it will be able to stand. So I say that to say this in connection to what we're talking about. A healthy fellowship of believers with a proper perspective should have Jesus Christ as the focal point of the church. It should have Jesus Christ that the church is being built upon, and the main purpose of a church's assembling together should be for Jesus himself, so that we come together collectively to look to Jesus, to love on Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to receive ministry from Jesus. The church's existence is to experience Jesus. That's the, the existence of the church, to experience Jesus, to encounter him, to exalt him. Colossians 1.18 says Jesus is the head of the body, the church, that in all things he, Jesus, may have the preeminence. And that word preeminence means to be the most important, to have the highest rank, and to be most superior. So Jesus is intended to have the preeminence in the church. He is to be the person, the one, whom we assemble for, the one that we look to, the one that we gather to love upon, to learn from, the one who we are wanting to experience and encounter. Now, in connection to the, how the ministry of the Holy Spirit works among the church, to tie this together, it is interesting that Jesus, two times himself speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, points to the fact that one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit would be that he would point people to Jesus. Jesus says, he'll testify of me. 
he'll glorify me. That's what he would do. Let me read you two texts from John's gospel. These are the words of Jesus. John 15, verse 26, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So Jesus says, When I depart, when I ascend to heaven, and my Father and I send the Spirit down, to replace my presence upon the earth for ministry among the church, Jesus says that the Spirit will be doing this. He will be testifying of me. He'll be pointing people to me. He'll be talking about me. He'll, he'll be seeking to promote me among the people of God. Jesus then said again in John 16, verse 13 and 14, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. Listen, this is key. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So very clearly, Jesus says two times emphatically, the, one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit among the people of God is that he will be testifying of Jesus, and Jesus says, and he will be seeking to glorify me. Now, I say that in connection to what we're talking about, that one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit among the church is to point people to Jesus, is to promote the person of Jesus, is to get people's attention on the person of Jesus. So one of the ways very clearly I as a Christian can evaluate any ministry for that matter in regards to wanting to deduce, does it seem the Spirit of God is the one at work here in directing things, is I can step back and evaluate, is a lot of the focus of what's happening in this ministry causing people to look to Jesus? Is it causing people to want to learn from Jesus? Is it causing people to really want to live for Jesus uh, and to cause people to want to experience Jesus in their lives? Because the Holy Spirit will put attention on Jesus. The Holy Spirit won't draw attention to himself. And when there becomes an overemphasis and infatuation with the Spirit, the Spirit, what's the, not that we shouldn't be open to the Spirit of God, don't, don't get me wrong, but when there's an overemphasis on, on an infatuation of always about spirit, the spirit of God and spiritual experience, sometimes we have to wonder if things are getting a little out of balance there. Or worse yet, the spirit of God is never going to give attention to human flesh. So if the operation of a ministry is taking place in such a way whereby a person or persons or personalities are becoming the focal point of a church or of a ministry... I have to step back and begin to wonder, has something began to happen where it seems instead of the Holy Spirit, maybe the human spirit is having a little too much domination here? Because the Spirit, Jesus said, he'll glorify me. Jesus said the Spirit will testify of me. He'll cause people to talk about me. Listen, I understand the Spirit of God works through individuals and instruments and personalities, musicians and ministers, and I understand that. But at the end of the day, there should still be a predominant emphasis of, man, isn't it really awesome what the Lord did? Isn't it really neat how the Lord spoke to our hearts through that message? Isn't it really neat how the Spirit of God, you know, and, and, and the, the focal point will always be turning back to the Lord, and the attention will always ultimately, because the Spirit will cause people to be impressed by Jesus and to want to look to Him, and that will be His continual ministry among the church. And I think that's a very, very important thing that sometimes we can be quick to overlook 
but really is rooted in, in the basis of what the Holy Spirit seeks to do, is to direct people to Jesus Christ and to keep their focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, secondarily, again, if you're taking notes, a second area where this ministry of the Spirit takes place is, is the Holy Spirit also, secondly, enables and empowers us as Christians for ministry. The Holy Spirit enables us, and he is the one that empowers us for ministry through the gifts of the Spirit that the Bible speaks about operating in our lives. For example, think of when Jesus was giving the Great Commission to his disciples. You know, These were a group of bumbling, fumbling men, just like all of us. You know, We call them the apostles. They more were like the B-apostles more often than the apostles. They were making mistakes, and, and, and the weakness of their flesh was so evident. And Jesus is about to depart from earth, and he's going to turn his whole ministry over to these 12 guys, inexperienced, uneducated, not formally trained, uh, and he's, and he's going to, look, you're going to take the gospel now, and you're going to start the initiation of spreading the gospel over the whole world. You want to talk about being a little far over their head, being totally inadequate and incapable of what they're called to do. That's why Paul ultimately said, look, we realize that there is no sufficiency, he says in 2 Corinthians, we, we are not sufficient of ourselves. But God has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Again, we are totally insufficient to do ministry, any kind of ministry. You know, we can kid ourselves because we have a couple natural talents or sometimes we're you know, naturally gifted. I think God uses our natural talents. But any ministry that we do, if there is not an empowerment of the Spirit, we're sunk, man. We're, we're only going to go so far in human effort. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, talking to the disciples... In chapter 24, verse 46 to 49, of how they were to preach the gospel in all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, he then said to them in verse 49, Behold, and I'll send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. And then in Acts chapter 1-8, we know that Jesus said again there, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So very clearly, Jesus himself pointed out this need of power, of spiritual enablement in the life of the disciples if they were to fulfill the ministry that he was calling them to. And the Lord's given us all different ministries. And he expects us to wait upon him to be empowered, to have his spirit come upon us. And we'll talk more about some of these things in the studies ahead, but a very clear indication that they needed the power of the spirit's ministry in their lives. Again, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 describe the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit that exist among the body of Christ. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. Just look at this briefly. We don't have a lot of time to develop this, because, and we'll talk about it more in depth in another study when we talk about the gifts a little more specifically. But 1 Corinthians 12, and look with me in verse 4. Again, we talked at the beginning of the study when I was kind of making some introductory comments about this idea of that the church is a body with different members, with different functions, just like a human body operating together, but having individual and different, you know, kind of parts that we make up and different functions to the part that we are. And chapter 12 is all about that very issue. Uh, he says in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts. So again, all different types of gifts, variations in the different kinds of gifts that exist. Uh, 
but the same spirit that's directing all those gifts. There are differences of ministries. So again, is there supposed to be more than one kind of ministry among local churches? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, I, I think variety is essential. I think that there to have you know unity but yet still to have variety within that is an important thing because people are different different people gravitate towards different things and God wants to reach the whole world and I appreciate the diversities among the body of Christ even the differences of different types of churches and ministries these are important things but it's the same Lord that we're doing all these things for and through and there are diversities of activities so even the gifts themselves how the gift of teaching, again, if I can illustrate, how the gift of teaching may operate spiritually through my life may not be and really should not be probably the same way the gift of teaching operates through someone else's life when they teach the word of God, if God's called them to the same thing because God's wired them differently and they have a different personality. And, and really teaching to me is just truth conveyed through personality. Uh, that God's made us who we are, and, and we have different styles. You know, I look among even the Calvary Chapel movement, and I see tremendous variation of guys who are called to teach the Word of God, and yet are radically, radically different, uh, but are all, in a sense, called. So, again, we can have the same gift, whether it's you know a gift of teaching, a gift of exhortation, a gift of mercy and helps. Uh, you know, you can have the same gift, but it may operate a little different in your life than it does in somebody else's life in the way that God orchestrates it and the Spirit uniquely works through your life. He goes on to say, verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given notice to each one. So we all have some manifestation of the Spirit at work in our lives. If you're a Christian, God doesn't exclude you. He includes you in this. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. Here's why. For the profit of all. These gifts operate in such a way that we benefit and profit other people among us. They're not for our own profit, but to help strengthen the body of Christ and do ministry. For to one is given, and we'll talk about these gifts later, the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, he says, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. So again, he gives this list. It's not exhaustive, but he mentions some of the gifts the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 here. And then he says, verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he will so again we see that it is the spirit of god that sovereignly superintends over the gifts of the spirit of god at work in people's lives so these spiritual uh, enablements these divine capacities uh, and i think some of the divine gifts that are mentioned here are not things that we have sovereign control over that we can just walk around and exercise that gift wherever we want i think a lot of the gifts that are mentioned here in first corinthians 12 are gifts that the spirit individually at his determination distributes as he wills so the spirit of god sees as he looks at a group of believers you know they're facing something and they need to come to a determination they need a resolution and they're not sure so i can see they need a word of wisdom so the spirit of god puts a word of wisdom into one individual's heart or he gives a word of knowledge to some individual in a prayer meeting and he determines 
whose mind he's going to plop that in or or whose heart he's going to give that to. It's not as if somehow, oh, you need a word of wisdom? No problem. I can give you a word of wisdom. That's not how – we'll talk about – this is a sovereign thing of the Spirit of God where he determines, you know what, I, I, they need a word of knowledge, so I'm going to put a word of knowledge into Tracy's mind and so that she can say, look, I believe the Lord's put something in my heart I'm to share, and boom, the Spirit of God – through the conveying of what the Spirit of God put in somebody's heart and mind, speaks a word of knowledge. And But again, it's the Spirit controlling and operating these things, enabling and empowering us for ministry as the gifts operate among us. A third area that I want to point out to your attention that I think the Spirit directs regarding ministry in the church is the Spirit also provides supernatural anointing for both the preaching of the gospel for salvation as well as for the proclamation or the teaching of God's word on a continuous basis for the church assembly to then strengthen and equip and to teach the church, that the Spirit provides that supernatural anointing. Again, I think this happens generally as all believers seek to share the gospel in the world with unsaved people. Acts 4.31 says, when they prayed, referring to Christians, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The result... And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So as they prayed, the spirit of God fell upon them. They were filled, baptized. The spirit came upon them. And as a result, they went out with an, a renewed boldness. And they began to just speak the word of God in their communities and their jobs and the areas where they lived. I also think, again, the spirit is the one who in specific situations and with maybe specific individuals who God sets apart and maybe gives a gift to be a pastor teacher and to have the ability to communicate the word of God on his behalf, uniquely anoints people to do that. I, I, initially, as I, I think of this concept, the first thing that comes to my mind before thinking of us is Jesus's own public ministry. Because in John chapter four, excuse me, Luke chapter 4, Jesus declared regarding his own public ministry as he was living out his life as a man in the flesh, simultaneously as he was God, regarding his public ministry and his humanity, Jesus said this in Luke 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me and anointed me for this ministry of preaching, of proclamation of God's truth. And again, we see the same with others who minister in the New Testament. Uh, I think of Paul's words to the Corinthians. In fact, if you want to turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I can show you how this kind of connects in regards to Paul's ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talking to the Corinthians about his ministry among them as he came there, shared the gospel, and then we know for 18 months he stood among them, then teaching them the word of God even after he shared the gospel initially in that community. He pastored that church for about an 18-month time frame, it tells us. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, and listen to Paul's words, when I came, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you. Interesting, look what Paul's primary message was, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What do we say at the beginning of the study is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit? Promoting Jesus Christ. Pointing people to Jesus Christ. Talking about Jesus Christ. Because people need to encounter 
Jesus Christ. Paul says, my message was very simplistic. He said, quite honestly, I really didn't have much to say, but what I always tried to do was just keep telling people to look to the Lord. <laughs> I just kept telling people, look, you failed, hey, let's look to the Lord. He forget, You're struggling, let's look to the Lord. And Paul said, my primary ministry, remember, he says, it really wasn't that that you know impressive or in-depth. I just kept trying to point everybody to Jesus. I just kept realizing, if I can just point you back to Jesus, we'll all be okay, we'll all stay on target. Paul says, I... I sought to really know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, those statements there to me, and time doesn't permit us this evening, are worthy really of meditation in regards to, again, I think preaching, teaching, communicating the word of God. Because Paul very clearly states here, look, when I came to you, he says, you know what the experience was like when I came and I began to speak to you and then I continued to speak to you for months and, and years after that. He said, I didn't come with excellence of speech. In other words, what Paul's trying to say is, look, I'll be the first to acknowledge I wasn't the most eloquent person. I wasn't a golden-tongued orator. You know, I, I wasn't formally trained how to enunciate certain words and how to, you know, rhyme to a certain cadence when I spoke to be really catchy and get your attention. And, and I, I wasn't always the greatest at, you know, having these really interesting and impressive outlines that you know, Paul says, look, I, I, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech. Now, in Corinth, they love that, which is interesting that Paul didn't, Give them what they would have, it wasn't, but that wasn't how I came to you. He says, in fact, here he says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul says, to tell you the truth, if you could see the other side of the pulpit, my knees were knocking. Man, I was terrified. I was afraid every time I was standing up because I, I was still nervous about the fact of what am I doing handling the word of God and why would I be the one speaking to people the truths of God? Paul says, I was weak. I was nervous. I wasn't really the most effective communicator. Uh, again, potentially, Paul, look, I wasn't the greatest at, at honoring every grammatical rule. You know, I, I spoke in ways where at times, you know, I, I bumbled over my words and I didn't use maybe the proper grammar or say the things I should have. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it actually says to us there, 2 Corinthians 10 says that Paul's speech was contemptible. In other words, when some people listen to Paul speak, they will listen to Paul speak and say, that guy can't even talk right. He doesn't, he doesn't even use proper grammar. He doesn't even speak correctly. What in the world is he doing <laughs> communicating the truths of God? He's not even a proficient speaker. Paul says, I didn't use, notice here he says, I didn't use persuasive words. My speech and preaching, verse 4, he says, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. So Paul's saying, look, when I communicated to you, the reason why it resonated with your heart, he said, was not because I was just really good at persuasive speaking. It wasn't because I just had this ability, a natural gifting or a charisma somehow, to be able to, like, almost like a, you know, a gifted salesman, to just really present the deal in such a way that it was really persuasive. You know, remember maybe in high school or college you had to write papers, like a persuasive-oriented paper to convince somebody of your point? Paul says, I, I didn't get that class, and I would have failed it if I took it. And the reason why, Paul says, when I spoke to you, 
from a book that is spiritual in its origin, the reason why it resonated inside your soul, Paul said, was not because I was just good at being persuasive, but it was because the power of God and the anointing of God's Spirit was upon my life. And that was the only reason why when I spoke to you, you had an encounter with God through His Word because the God that inspired His Word was the God whose anointing was upon my life by His sovereign grace. And therefore, he says, it had impact in your life. Paul says, my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and power. And I'll tell you something. Listen, gang. When we share the gospel, when somebody preaches the gospel to see people get saved, when somebody proclaims the word of God, teaches the word of God, communicates the word of God, look, they can be the most intelligent person. They can be well-trained. They can intellectually know the scriptures backwards and forward. Uh, you know, they can be incredible orators and they can be great speakers and, and gifted communicators. And I'm not diminishing that. I'm not trying to down, I'm not trying to, you know, downplay intelligence and put a premium on ignorance. I'm not trying to downplay, you know, giftedness and capability. I think God can use all those things. I, I think what Paul understood was, look, all those things, if there is not the unction of the Spirit of God, attached to those things, it won't have genuine spiritual impact in a person's soul that's listening. If there is not the anointing, the unction from on high upon a person's life as they communicate the truths of God, there will be something deficient. Something will be missing. And you know what? I've been a Christian long enough. I've listened to enough people teach and communicate the word of God I, I've seen it both ways before. I've experienced it both ways before. I've listened to somebody stumble and bumble, but at the same time, it was like a sword was going through my soul, and I was hearing God talk to me, and it was changing my life, and it was it was feeding me and nourishing me, and I knew that I was hearing a word from the Lord on high when they communicated the word of God, and I recognized the anointing of God was there, and then I've heard others who, who were honestly more impressive and almost seemed more intelligent and experienced, but yet there was something missing. There was some dynamic that was missing. That dynamic's a spiritual dynamic. It's an anointing of God's Spirit that's essential, it's critical. And Paul here points something out very worthy of, of understanding that there's a spiritual dynamic and an element involved to those who are communicating His truth if the Spirit's supernatural anointing is upon their life. And that's what's necessary. Listen, if you feel called to teach the Word of God, that is the most primary thing. That is the most important thing, that you want to have that anointing upon your life. And, and I will tell you this, and if it discounts me and, and you, you find somewhere else, that if you're going to sit under the ministry of the Word of God, I challenge you as a fellow Christian, make sure you're not just sitting under the ministry of the Word of God where information is being given to you, but that there is an inspirational anointing of the Spirit of God upon the teaching of the Word of God in your life because there'll be a vast difference. Because listen, if that's not there, we are nothing more than just a Bible college. I don't want to be just a Bible college. Do you understand? We're, we're not just a, a, a group of people who get together that want more intellectual information about God. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. I want to hear the loving heartbeat of God coming through His Word speaking to me, that living Word that He wants to communicate into our lives. Well, 
A fourth area that I think we see the Spirit's ministry at work among the church, number four, again, if you're taking notes, is that the Spirit also helps us to worship God properly. And we talked a little bit about this Sunday morning almost in our study there. Remember, Jesus himself indicated in his own words that it is possible to worship God in a sense, improperly. Matthew 15, Jesus declared this in verse 8 and 9. Matthew 15, 8 and 9, he said, These people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. So Jesus himself said that it is possible to draw near to God with our mouths, to sing songs, to say the right things, to go through the motions of you know, a spiritual worship practice and honor him with our lips, but yet our heart be disconnected, our heart be far from God to the point where he said, in vain they worship me. Now that's kind of searching (laughs) that Jesus would say, it's possible somebody to worship and think they're worshiping God, and actually it's completely vain. It's completely empty and worthless. So we can worship God improperly. So how do we experience worshiping God as we should? Answer, by the assistance and the aid of the Holy Spirit helping us. I would point to your attention, John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, where Jesus says these words regarding our worship. John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus declares, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. A couple things are very evident there. First of all, number one, Jesus says there's a difference between true worship and false worship. That's important to take note of. Secondly, Jesus says that God is seeking people to worship him. Interesting. We don't find in the Bible God seeking people to work for him, but yet we put a lot of premium on that. I work for God, man. I really work hard for God. I'm so exhausted. I'm wor-. The Bible says that the Father is seeking people to worship foremost. God is seeking worship. God wants our worship. Worshiping God is is essential. It's fundamental. And I think this, that if we're worshiping God properly, then there'll be a healthy balance of how we work for God productively and actively. Because you can work yourself to death trying to work for God. And if you're, in a sense, you know, removing yourself and gradually eradicating worship from your life, man, that work is going to become a real quick burnout and it's going to get real fleshly and carnal real fast. But if the primary basis of your life is, I am a worshiper first. I love to worship God personally and collectively with his people. And you love to worship God. You know what? Out of that, you'll be the greatest servant of God and the most effective worker there is. But God is seeking our worship first. But the Bible says, Jesus tells us that God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we have to worship God according to the truth of his word. Who is Jesus really and understanding who he is? What does the word of God say? What is the, we, God wants to be worshipped correctly because he is the one true and living God. So we have to worship him in truth, in accordance with his word. And we have to worship him from the realm of our spirit. God is spirit. The Bible says that we have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And it's from our spirit, which is awakened when we're saved. The, the spirit of God enters us in our dead spirit comes alive, and it's from our spirit, from the innermost part of our being, the genuine, eternal, real part of you that will last forever. That is the spot from where we connect with God in our spirit. Our spirit interacting with his spirit. It tells us in Romans chapter 8 that God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. 
So worship is intended to be a very intimate, personal thing where we are connecting with God, not just in our emotions, not just through physical motions of, because look, I'll be real candid. I can raise my hands and my heart and my mind be totally somewhere else, but God's not. Tony, I want your spirit to be connected with my spirit. I want something intimate, something passionate to be taking place. So again, and Jesus said that God is spirit and it's the spirit of God that then can assist us to direct us to be able to worship God acceptably and properly. And we need to seek the spirit's assistance to be able to worship God himself, who is spirit in a proper and an acceptable way. Again, if I can illustrate in your mind, I almost envision it this way. I kind of picture the Holy Spirit almost like uh, like a divine conductor. You know, if you've ever gone to, uh, I don't know, you listen to a choir or like a band or an orchestra or something, and you have the person up front with a stick that I never understand, but they kind of do this and, you know, go like this, and somehow everybody out there, you know, it sounds beautiful. Somehow that means something, and they know what that means, and they're following the lead of that individual as the conductor. I kind of envision the Holy Spirit like the invisible conductor of the choir of God. And that we need to be letting the Spirit of God and seeking the Spirit of God and looking to the Spirit of God to be the one to be conducting the worship that's coming from the people of God and directing to God. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we should be filled with the Spirit and then speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs making melody in our heart to the Lord. Again, in other words, making melody in our heart. Not just nice singing, not just good singing. I think good music should be something we strive for. We should do all that we do to the glory of God. But we can have really great music, but if that really great music isn't helping people make melody in their heart to the Lord, but they're going, man, this is better than, uh, you know, this is better than going to like a Shane and Shane concert, man. This is better than Phil Wickham. And I don't have to pay for this. Well, something something got off track there. <laughs> Yes, we should have really great quality music because we do it for the Lord and we, we want to honor God in all we do and, and we want people to say, man, that's pleasing, that's enjoyable, not like, oh, goodness gracious, what do they got that person singing for? You know, we don't want to stumble people, but we need to understand we're trying to connect with people's hearts to get that heart to connect with the heart of God through worship to facilitate that. And I think for those who lead the musical portion of a worship service, Man, this is critical that you're serious about depending upon looking to the Spirit of God to be the conductor in the worship meeting. It's, it's an essential part. Again, I like how the Bible says using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those are different kinds of songs. We know what psalms are. They're in the Bible, and many of them were set to music. We sing some of the songs. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. We know what the psalms are. Hymns. Like we sang tonight, it is well with my soul. Hymns have these incredible theological truths in them. I mean, you want to talk about sound doctrine, the old hymns, the, the doctrinal truths in those as you sing them and, and your heart's resonating with doctrinal things. You know how thinking loud it got in here? When people were singing tonight, it is well with our soul. You know how old that song is compared to some of the other songs? But the doctrinal truths in that have such theological depth to them it resonates with our spirit to make us connect with God. But he also mentions in Ephesians 5 also spiritual songs, courses, songs that are new. Sing a new song to the Lord. Maybe a new praise course that, you know, it isn't a hymn, but it's a, a praise course that God gives to someone. And we should always be open to receiving new songs from the Lord, fresh expressions through song and music of how we worship God. And see, I think a spirit-filled, anointed 
musical you know, leader that's trying to be wise about leading God's people to worship is praying and saying, okay, Lord, not just I got to come up with five or six songs. What are the five or six songs that your spirit desires us to use tonight to worship you and to connect with you in this meeting? Because, Father, there's going to be people there, and maybe there's somebody there who has got a broken heart. And maybe there's somebody there who's beginning to wander. And, and so, therefore, for them, it'd be a really healthy thing if they begin to sing, Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And, and how being sensitive to what the Holy Spirit wants us to do in our worship and even the songs that we select Listen, I would hope that the congregation of God is saying, you know, if you're going to teach us the Word of God, I sure hope that you're praying when you study the Bible and that you're receiving from the Lord and delivering to us what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us in this hour from that text and portion of Scripture. Well, I would hope there'd be nothing less when we just as much worship the Lord through music and singing, which is the method one of the primary methods the Bible commands for us to use to express worship to God, to sing to God, to connect with God. He, he, he requests our singing. Uh, and I find it very beautiful that we should be sensitive and, and, and conscious of not only just having our heart involved, but letting the Holy Spirit lead what we sing and how we sing. And it can be a very beautiful thing. I have you know, ministered with you know, musicians and worship leaders who, man, I've really seen this in their life, and I'm telling you, it is a beautiful thing. Because then you begin to see the Spirit of God directing and connecting the, you know, what's being sung together with the message. And listen, I'm not one of these guys who has this kind of, well, you know, getting cahoots with the worship leader, and, you know, almost like you're developing a program for the church service. So I, I'm going to teach this and I'm going to hit on these three points. So, you know, do this song, this song, and this song. I'm not talking about that because if, you, if you're going to start doing that and you're going to just make it a program or the church service is going to be a presentation, well, then you might as well tell the guy in the back and look at this song, do pink lighting, and at this song, do blue lighting, and bring the steam out at the end when I, you know, really get. Then it becomes a presentation. I'm talking about when the Spirit of God is being allowed to direct like a divine invisible conductor the entire worship meeting and then all of a sudden you begin to see the holy spirit weave a theme through a worship service and from the first prayer that's prayed to the music that's sung to the word of god that's communicated to the right ending song people's hearts are being connected and interacting with god and nobody knew what was going on in anybody's life when they came in, but the Holy Spirit's just moving and conducting in a way where everybody is experiencing his ministry. Well, let me mention these last three things, and they're not things I intend to be lengthy on, but just to kind of set before you as well. A fifth area where the Spirit works among the church is he also warns us of danger and potential problems in the church body. Now, this should be pretty self-explanatory, but let me just give you two texts how the Spirit warns us of danger and potential problems in the church body. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed, listen, to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul says the Spirit expressly says or warns that there will be a time when there will be deceiving spirits and doctrines that are being presented and promoted by demons, demonic forces promoting doctrines among the people of God. So it is the Holy Spirit who does what? 
helps us identify wrong doctrines. It's the spirit of truth. Remember, that's who he is. So we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as a congregation in the church when he warns us of, look, that doctrine is not from the Spirit of God. That idea that's being promoted, this, this new wave that's blowing through the church, listen, that wind is not from the wind of the Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit warns us of that. And, and we need to be sensitive of wrong and dangerous ideas and doctrines. The Holy Spirit also warns us of dangerous and problematic people in the church. Because listen to what Acts chapter 20 says, Acts 20, 28 to 30. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, Paul says, he's talking to the elders, take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So one of the warnings Paul gave as the Spirit was directing him to the elders at Ephesus there in Acts chapter 20 is Paul said, listen, he said to the elders, he said, the Holy Spirit, again, who's doing it? The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's made you spiritual watchmen in the care and oversight of the flock of God that you're to love and and to tend on God's behalf as under shepherds. And he says, one of the things that the Holy Spirit has called you to pay attention to is Paul says, there will be people who are corrupt from the outside that try and infiltrate the family of God. Savage wolves that come in with nothing other than an agenda to just come in and hurt and rob and rip off and abuse the body of Christ and to devour the flock. And he says, watch for those individuals. And he says, also, you need to pay attention because he says, it's not just people from the outside coming in. He says, sometimes from among yourselves, men with a perversity in their heart will rise up and they'll begin to speak perverse things because they want to draw away disciples after themselves. And, and, and he says this can be a problematic thing from internally among the family of God, someone with an agenda, a perversity in their heart, tries to capitalize on a situation and says, hey, you know, if, if I were in charge, oh, man, I, I would do things way differently than he's doing. Or, you know, I mean, if, if, or if, if I had the opportunity, you know, I'm actually thinking about starting something. Does that kind of resonate? And, and he says that there will be people with just a perverse agenda that are opportunists that will capitalize on the flock of God and just look for opportunities. And he says the Spirit of God is trying to tell us at times to be careful of problematic people. From the outside coming in, from the inside rising up, both of these can be destructive things to a church body. A sixth area that the Spirit works in the church is that he also evaluates and communicates the heart of the Lord to his people. He evaluates and then communicates the heart of the Lord to his church or to his people. With that, I would leave you this thought, Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches. There's one statement that Jesus says to all seven churches universally. Do you remember what it was? He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in all seven letters, what does Jesus do? He basically, each individual church was given specific counsel for their assembly. It was different for each local church because each local church is different. And in some churches, Jesus gave a commendation about things they were doing well. But then he also would give words of correction about things that they were doing that he wasn't pleased with that needed to be repented of, that needed to be adjusted a little bit. And so Jesus would always say, listen, 
Have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And I think, again, God hasn't changed, that if we're willing to pay attention and listen, every church, our church included, Calvary Chapel of Gateway, that if we're continuously being willing to listen in humility and have an ear to hear what the Spirit is wanting to say to our church, that there are times when the Lord says, you know, hey, I'm really proud of you. I'm proud of you. You're standing strong. I'm proud of you. But I think there are other times where the Lord may probe our hearts and he may say, you know what, you need to change your course here. Or you need to repent of this. This isn't the direction I want the church to go in. And if we're wise, we'll listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to us as a church. And there are many different ways, of course, he does that. But the Spirit will communicate to us counsel as a local assembly, even as he did with those seven churches there. Seventhly and lastly, one area, and this is sort of self-explanatory, that the Holy Spirit also works among the church, is I think it's the Spirit that orchestrates unity and healthy relationships among the church. Now, we talked a little bit about this kind of in our last study, and that's why I kind of just want to cap off with this in a quick, simplistic way. The Holy Spirit, again, the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, is what? Love. 1 Corinthians 12, it's all about the unity of the body of Christ as a result of the Spirit joining us together in one. We read many scriptures about how we're to relate to one another properly so that we don't grieve the Spirit of God. Again, if I can illustrate, I think the Holy Spirit kind of works like the immune system in a human body. You know, the immune system identifies what may be unhealthy, and it seeks to then work to heal, to correct. And the Holy Spirit is at work among the people of God to help us to learn how, through love, which is the fruit of the Spirit, and through biblical instruction, how to relate to each other properly. Because listen, we're a family, okay? We're going to offend one another. We're going to do things at times that irritate one another. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to misunderstand one another. And and those little things, if they're not dealt with and addressed, they can become infectious. Things can become cancerous. Look, we've all seen this, haven't we? But if we're listening to the Holy Spirit and we're yielded to the Holy Spirit and we're a bunch of individual children of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love in my life, and Rick's life, and John's life, and Libby's life, and Paul's life. And the fruit of the Spirit is love among us. Then guess what? It is going to be a lot more quick to see things healed and resolved before they become cancerous and spread and become destructive and detrimental to the relationships among the body of Christ. And one of the clearest to me indications of a Spirit-filled ministry, a Spirit-filled church is there's an atmosphere of love, an atmosphere of love. And I don't mean by that just sentimental, you know, everybody, you know, happy, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Are you okay? I'm okay, let's be okay. I'm not talking about that kind of, I'm talking about biblical love that has a balance of truth, biblical love where we care about people and we esteem people and we consider one another and we're dedicated to each other we're devoted to one another we care for one another we love people with the love of god but yet at the same time if we we love someone we're willing to help someone to correct someone to bring them back on course when they're erring but at the end of the day we go hey man but love covers a multitude of sins and as we are filled with the spirit of god and listen to the spirit of god It keeps the relationships among the family of God healthy. Well, let's stand. Let's pray. We're able to slip all of those in and think through some of those things.